Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it is time now for us to talk about the future of work. And when you think about that, when you think about the jobs of the future, I know a lot of people automatically go to the growing field of technology and STEAM education. I know we used to say STEM, now we say STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. Now, access to these sectors continues to expand, but there's really a lot of untapped potential waiting to be explored here too. So enter Ethos Lab. This is a local academy that is kind of tackling this challenge head on. The founder is Antonia Ogundele, and she's leading the charge to explore STEAM through a more diverse lens. So aiming not only to get more diversity into the industry, but also to advance the growing world of technology. So our producer, Bianca Rego, spoke with Antonia to find out how Ethos Lab is really empowering some underrepresented presented communities to unleash their full potential in order to advance the limitless potential of future STEAM workers. So how can amplifying Black experiences benefit the future of STEAM? Yeah, I mean, when we are thinking about different spaces of learning, we never quite interrogate the cultural context in which the different environments that the young people are learning in. So for example, a lot of like programming might happen in just like straight technical learning, whether it be coding, whether it be robotics, but we don't really interrogate that we're not really looking at the cultural context that may or may not be impacting the diversity of these spaces, both from a gender perspective as well as whether or not there are Black youth in this space as well, too. And so centering the humanity of the Black experience, which means creating a space where Black youth feel respected, reflected, and protected, is a strong foundation for us to build and create an inclusive environment for all. So if a Black youth feels comfortable to learn, be courageous, and seize themselves in the space, whether it be mentors, art, or within the context of learning, then it's actually creating a more um, inclusive environment for people across the gender spectrum to Indigenous communities to just all young people feeling welcome in that space as well. So when I first discovered Ethos Lab, I was looking through the courses that you offered and I noticed that public speaking is one of them. So that said, why do you think that it's important for BIPOC youth and just youth in general have access to courses that help them learn how to make their ideas and their opinions heard once they enter the workforce? Yeah, because again, being underrepresented in the workforce is um, symptomatic of what's happening within the schools. And so for racialized youth, um, to even girls in spaces that may specifically have a high number of a, a particular gender or even culture, there is a tendency to be quite quiet or feel unseen or invisible in these different spaces. So we believe that it's really important to teach young people to feel confident, 
to also feel courageous to be able to share their ideas, no matter what it is. And we understand that there are different contentious issues, but that's why we see um, debate and critical thinking and logic as really core aspects of our curriculum and like learning environment. It's so key for a young person to be able to communicate their ideas. And so I think for in particular Black youth that are heavy content creators in terms of as music and movement of culture, as well as thought, that they're oftentimes appropriated or not necessarily given the credit to be able to share the origins of the thought or origins of the creation. And so for Ethos Lab, we believe that in being able to, again, empower Black youth to be able to do that, you're actually teaching all young people that that is a necessary skill to have in terms of communicating your ideas. I actually was reading a study about diversity in the workforce and the productivity that a diverse workforce can bring. And the results showed that employees, although they're aware of diversity in general, they have a poor competence in dealing with diversity in their daily work life. So although that is a very complex question, what is Ethos Lab doing differently to ensure that this changes in the future? So this type of intercultural connection and that, again, acknowledgement of our shared humanity is not something that can be resolved just solely off of diversity training or diversity statements by the time it reaches the workplace. It really needs to start at the ground level from kindergarten throughout the K-12 to education space. And so for Ethos Lab, we have predominantly Black leaders and we highlight Black leaders Again, it's uh, centering BIPOC folk in terms of the instruction. And, and we think it's important to have these environments, again, where young people of different backgrounds are exposed to a diversity of Blackness um, and also a diversity of young people. So there are some kids who are not Black that are part of Ethos Lab that this might be the first time that they're interacting with another Black student or multiple Black students. Um, and so the relationship changes when the Black student isn't the only one. It actually creates an environment where uh, a Black youth can just be themselves, knowing that they're supported by leadership. But at the same time, you know, right now, um, I'm at the office and, and there are non-Black youth that are learning about African fashion and learning about textiles. And that's the context in which they're understanding creativity and innovation. Like how much richer is the learning environment when you start to go beyond the Eurocentric models or, or areas of learning? And so that, again, this needs to happen right from the K to 12 education, where they're just able to work together, be together, acknowledge that we do have that shared humanity and that we all deserve to be reflected, respected and protected in any space that we're in. And what we're seeing right now is that that is not the case that at the K to 12 level, um, that young people are being segmented based on class. Um, we're seeing they're being discriminated based on gender. We're seeing this happen on race. And we also see the regional um, stereotypes that are carried based on where people live. And so with Ethos Lab, we're really excited at the opportunity of creating that hub where all young people from different backgrounds, different classes with differing abilities and genders can come together and feel included and belonging in um, a space that's committed to creating that inclusive future so that when they do reach the workforce, we're actually having a different kind of conversations. How do you think that 
prioritizing diversity, specifically in tech, because I know that you created the first uh, Black metaverse. So without inclusivity, how would that influence AI and like the future in general? Yeah, I think the world is changing faster than ever. The way that we understand um, how we interact virtually, even physically, is going to change with all of this new and emerging technology. Um, With Vancouver being the world's ecosystem around virtual reality, it was just really important for me in creating a space for teens in particular to be able to really begin to influence this future, again, grounded on emerging technology, or what we call it is is kind of the Web3 context, where we move into a more virtual, immersive social interactions. I mean, we're already seeing the impacts of artificial intelligence and how that's impacting the school system. And what Ethos Lab does is we're not running away from it. We're leaning in And we're making sure that BIPOC young people and leaders are at the forefront, spearheading innovation, being the creators and creating these spaces so that all of it, this future that we are building together is truly inclusive. Our vision is that Ethos Lab will be that center for young people to access the emerging technology. So while we're focused on, um, again, our target demographics of increasing representation, we really there is really no other organization like us out there that is focused on Web3 and emerging technology. And um, we couldn't have started at any other place beyond Vancouver. And our intention is to go national and um, across the continent to be able to not only give young people access to this programming, but start to really bridge those gaps that we've been talking about around those regional stereotypes, around access to make it easier for young people to plug in and create a movement towards a more inclusive future. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we've talked a lot about mental health struggles here on the show. And what's really hard in a lot of cases is just getting the diagnosis. Think about what a difference it could make to so many people if we could accurately target and treat things like bipolar disorder, if we could just identify it more easily. Well, new new technology is helping to play a role in that, in particular helping to identify bipolar disorder at a younger age because the onset is typically during adolescence or early adulthood. Dr. Alex Shegletov is the research lead and assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
Absolutely. My pleasure to be with you. So tell me about this work that you did here. You've done some research into using a new technique to identify the factors that contribute to bipolar disorder. What is that all about? How does that work? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, pediatric bipolar disorder, it's, uh, it's a developmental brain disorder that is among most severe and devastating um, psychiatric conditions that affects uh, children and teenagers. And it could be hard to diagnose this problem because it has considerable overlap with other conditions like ADHD, anxiety, and depression. And uh, typically children with these disorders, they experience these extreme mood swings, such as uh, very happy and energetic or very sad and hopeless. And also often uh, children with, with this problem, they have trouble sleeping, concentrating, and making good decisions good decisions and sometimes they have even this uh, thoughts about uh, hurting, hurting themselves. So um, the problem is that we don't understand the biology of this disorder, like what's, what's, what's happening in the brain and why, why, why something is not working. So, and I had this um, uh, wonderful uh, graduate student in my lab, um, Guan Yan. Um, he graduated last year, and so he had this previous experience doing a brain imaging on individuals with different psychiatric disorders, and he was really fascinated with this idea that you know, we could potentially do some imaging experiments, brain imaging experiments on individuals that were diagnosed with a disease, and then we could potentially collect uh, some um, skin cells or blood cells from these individuals, convert the cells into induced pluripotent stem cells and use induced pluripotent stem cells to to get uh, patient-specific neurons or patient-specific uh, organoids, which is kind of uh, uh, brain tissue that could be produced from uh, stem cells. So, yeah, we, we, we uh, established this uh, collaborative team consisting of investigators from um, several departments, including psychiatry, radiology, genetics and neurobiology and uh, we recruited a family that um, had an individual with uh, with early onset bipolar disorder and also had an unaffected individual we um, we performed this uh, brain imaging um, and we found this uh, atypical connections in the individual with bipolar disorder which was kind of similar to what my collaborators observed in a larger cohort of uh, of patients and then uh, this family donated uh, blood samples for our study and we worked with uh, with a facility at the university of utah to convert blood cells into stem cells and then use stem cells to produce neurons and then when we generated neurons from um from um, uh, healthy individuals and from this individual with bipolar disorder we surprisingly discovered that these neurons from uh, individuals with bipolar disorder, they had this uh, abnormal morphology, uh, so to say they, they grew smaller. The size of uh, branches uh, uh, was smaller as compared to uh, the size of branches um, in neurons from healthy mm. control individuals. We did some um, um, sequencing and uh, identified potential candidates, and among the candidates was this... Uh, uh, molecule called uh, Plexin B1, and uh, which is known for helping um, brain cells to grow properly and connect uh, them with each other in in the brain to form uh, neural networks. And uh, 
yeah, we, we found this rare variant in, in, the, uh, in the individual with bipolar disorder, and we showed that if we introduce this variant in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in neurons uh, that do not express plexin B1, we can uh, make them grow smaller. And if we introduce normal copy of plexin B1 in uh, neurons from a uh, patient, we can actually we can, uh, uh, rescue uh, the, uh, the growth deficits. Okay. So what you're describing here then, if I got that right, <laughs> I was listening very carefully. <laughs> so what you're describing then is like a biological like footprint essentially for bipolar disorder. And is it possible then from what you said to correct that? Can you alter that? So is it chemistry? Is it biological? What is it? Yeah, so uh, I think... Um Important to to note here that bipolar is is a very complex problem, right? So it sometimes it it appears uh, later in life, sometimes it appears early in life, and when it appears later in life, there are many um, contributors. It could be stresses, it could be you know environment we live, it could be lack of sleep, it could be some medication. So there are many causes, but also it, it sometimes it appears really early in life and like before the age of 18, and like sometimes it's even before the age of 10, and this suggests that there might be some genetic component contributing to the disease. And so we specifically focus on this early onset bipolar, and what we found, yeah, suggests that this pathway and this. Uh, um, the the um, morphological abnormalities they could be like you said footprint associated with this early onset bipolar disorder. But to extend it to a larger cohort of people and to extend it to um, to bipolar in general, we, we obviously need uh, more studies. Right, but that sounds like a big first step there to potentially changing how we treat this. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. It's an interesting approach that have never been used before. What people have used before is only, for example, brain imaging or only um, making uh, stem cells and stem cell-derived uh, brain cells from um, from individuals with, with bipolar. But it, no one has previously used this combinatorial approach, multidisciplinary approach, where you could start with brain imaging, then you can uh, do some... Um, um, sequencing, then you can generate uh, stem cells and stem cell-derived neurons, and eventually you can go... Uh, like you reverse, en- you reverse engineered it is what you did, right? Like you were, you were chasing it backwards. Sort of, yes. <laughs> okay, so then what are the next steps here with your research then? How do you, how do you advance this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to, um, to recruit more individuals with early onset bipolar disorder and test the same signaling pathways, the same molecules, and see if we can find more individuals that uh, carry mutations or in, in this gene called plexin B1 or um, some other um, maybe genes that are associated with this, uh, with this gene, like, for example, some binding proteins. And, and then if we, if, we, if we find that uh, there are more such individuals, then we can definitely uh, start thinking about um, Developing some um, some some chemicals uh, that that target these pathways and that can potentially uh, increase the expression of of uh, of plexin B1 and 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 uh, upregulate activity in in this pathway. Wow, that's amazing! Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us this morning. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
anytime. That is Dr. Alex Shaglovitov, who's the research lead and assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah. So essentially what they're doing is they were kind of trying to chase the the footprint, the fingerprint of bipolar disorder, particularly in younger people, and chase it down and trying to figure out where it came from. And they have been able to essentially do that, which could potentially lead to some very different treatments on that. That is some fascinating work being done there. This is Mornings with Simi. What is precarious work? Well, generally means work that's not paid great. It's insecure. It is unprotected. And unfortunately, there is an awful lot of it here in BC. And new research also shows that certain groups are the ones that are most affected by this. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this research. I mean, maybe you have one of these jobs and you don't realize how precarious it actually is. Dr. Kendra Strauss is with us, the director of Simon Fraser University's Labor Studies Program and the Morgan Center for Labor Research. Dr. Strauss, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how do you define precarious work? Well, that's a good question because there's no standard definition of precarious work. But generally, precarious employment is defined, you know, pretty much as you said, jobs that are insecure, temporary, that don't have full-time hours, that are low paid and don't have access to benefits. So it's really about job quality and job security. Okay. And how prevalent is this in BC? Well, our research shows that, you know, it's more prevalent than most people would think. So if we take the basic definition of what we might think of as a good job or a standard job, so a full-time job with a single employer that's permanent with some benefits, it's actually fewer than half of the workers that we surveyed in BC who have those kinds of jobs. And then if we look at precarious jobs, you know, the ones that have that additional insecurity, it's almost 40% of the workers that we surveyed that fall in the precarious category in terms of their job. Well, have we done this kind of survey before in the province? No, we haven't. And that's one of the reasons that our team really set out to do this work. Um, Statistics Canada gathers lots of data, you know, on the labor force, but they've been pretty slow to adapt to some of the realities of the changing job market. And so we just didn't know a lot about things like, you know, how many people have multiple jobs, access to benefits, and some of the negative impacts of precarious employment, um, you know, stress and work related or health related impacts. So this is kind of a first of its kind study. Do you think that some people, perhaps they feel that their job is stressful, they feel like it is not secure, but maybe they don't fully understand that you actually have a precarious job? I think that's right. I think we've been slow to understand, you know, that these jobs have really spread throughout the economy. And we tend to think of gig work and app-based kind of platform work as precarious work. But what this study shows is that really precarious jobs exist in all parts of the economy and more people than we think have them. All right. So it's a startling number when I looked at this. Only 18% of the people you surveyed are actually in a secure job. That's right. Yeah. So those are those, you know, good jobs that are permanent, that pay a decent wage, that have access to benefits. Yeah, it's a relatively small proportion of the workers that we talk to who actually have those good jobs. Okay. And what do we know about who this impacts the most? Yeah, I think that's one of the findings that we should all, you know, be most concerned about. Um, It's definitely not equally distributed. So racialized and Indigenous workers are significantly less likely than white workers to have secure jobs. 
So the benefits of those secure jobs are not evenly distributed within our province and sort of within our economy. Um, It's Indigenous men who are most likely to be in precarious jobs, and that's followed by uh, racialized workers and women. And we found that overall, recent immigrants are, you know, are also among the groups most likely to not have access to secure jobs, so more likely to be precarious. So, Dr. Strauss, is this something that we would usually call, you know, gig work or the gig economy? Yeah, certainly some of those jobs are. And so we can think about people, you know, who work in industries, not only app-based work, but industries we associate with gig work. Um, You know, a lot of creative sectors have, you know, people work on short-term contracts. But I think what we're seeing is that these forms of insecure employment are broader than just gig work. So as an example, you know, you could work for the provincial government, um, you know, what in what it would have been a traditionally secure job, but you're very likely to be, for example, on a one-year contract. So it's those kind of short-term jobs, jobs that don't have access to benefits, um, that, that seem to be uh, more prevalent in our economy than we might realize. That's, you know, what's surprising about that, Dr. Strauss, is that a t- there was a time when if you got a job with the provincial government, you thought you were set. Exactly. You know, and and precarious work also impacts younger workers disproportionately. So I think one of the things we should be concerned about is whether these, you know, short-term, temporary and precarious jobs do translate into good jobs for all workers. Um, We need more research to understand that. But I think what our research shows is that if, you know, these large numbers of workers don't have access to secure jobs, it would seem that this is not a stepping stone for many workers. So you don't start with a with a temporary contract and then inevitably move into secure and permanent work. Right. So interesting. All right, Dr. Strauss, thanks for your time on that. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's Dr. Kendra Strauss, the director of SFU's Labor Studies Program. They did this first-of-its-kind survey of workers in BC. They did this a couple of years ago. It's more than 3,000 workers between the ages of 25 to 65 to examine the types of jobs they have. And only 18% of the people they surveyed were found to have what they call a secure job. Although I would argue these days, is any job really a secure job? That's, I think, how people are feeling. It uh, highlights the precariousness of it, right? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about wine in grocery stores, shall we? Now, where you live, this might already be a thing. I know there's stores in Langley and Surrey that already have this, but you know what? City of Vancouver never did. If you wanted wine with your dinner, you got your groceries and then you had to go maybe next door, maybe down the block to the liquor store. Well, Vancouver City Council thinks maybe they'd like to change that. They have voted to make that move, but let's talk about it. The person who brought this motion to council is Mike Klassen, Vancouver City Councilor, who joins us now. Good morning, Simi. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Okay, well, you got uh, unanimous uh, approval for this motion. How does that feel? Oh, it felt good. I mean, uh, this is something that uh, has come before council a couple of times. Uh, this time, I think we made a strong case that uh, this is the right move to make and, and uh, 
clearly all the other members of council thought uh, thought the same. So I'm very pleased that uh, now we have this option uh, to allow uh, wine on grocery store shelves. This is something that, uh, as you mentioned, other municipalities, I think over a dozen municipalities across uh, the province have already enacted this, most recently in the city of Coquitlam, and it's about time the city of Vancouver had a chance to have this as well. Okay, but here's the thing, though. Are there new licenses that are available for this, or is a liquor store going to have to close to move that license into a grocery store? The the whole liquor regulation and licensing is probably one of the most uh, confusing and sometimes complicated uh, parts of of our laws. But uh, currently right now, the the so-called BCBQA licenses, there are two dozen of them. Um, uh, Most of them are are spoken for, so uh, if we do get... A uh, new uh, wine on shelf in, in Vancouver in the immediate future, it would probably mean um, maybe a couple of stores, possibly in the downtown core, uh, where you know, we would have a lot of traffic for that. Um, but uh, certainly uh, governments in the future have the opportunity to explore that. Um, there has been a moratorium, and I think they wanted to see how it went. Um, but uh, certainly the, the ball sort of falls back into the provincial court as to whether they want to enable more of those licenses. Yeah, right, because that's what I was wondering, is is there a liquor store or a wine store out there that wants to give up their standalone store to move into a grocery store? Uh, well, there have been, I mean, with these particular licenses, which were originally established in the early 1990s to promote uh, BC wine products, um, they have been uh, slowly been uh, acquired by uh, grocers like Save On Foods, and so they are um, being uh, put out into Savon Foods uh, stores. Um, and, and I think uh, uh, Savon also owns the Urban Fairs store. So they have a couple of locations in downtown Vancouver that I think they're looking at. I won't, won't get too far ahead of any of their own announcements, but I think that we've got uh, opportunities to, to try and bring uh, BC VQA wines uh, into, into this setting. And as as you point out, yeah, there are other places that sell these products, but um, the, the range and diversity, the, uh, the kind of the number of labels that you can get um, would be probably unique to these uh, Save On uh, Foods experiences. Uh, I've been to them in other cities, and it's kind of great. They've got people who are there able to kind of answer your questions, like, you know, I'm having salmon tonight. What, what's a good pairing that we should have? And so I, I think it's kind of, an, a, kind of a cool opportunity. Do you think people will embrace this? Like, do they, have you heard from people who say they, they would rather just have it in a grocery store? I think just generally, um, Sandra Oldfield, who a lot of us know is a, a longtime uh, leader in the BC wine industry, former winemaker at Tinhorn Creek, she said last night that, you know, Vancouver is now kind of reading the room, uh, the Vancouver City Council is reading the room against the kind of prohibition that we've become kind of used to over the years. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you couldn't buy a beer on a Sunday in in, in city of Vancouver, and uh, slowly we've been uh, allowing these rules to uh, sort of catch up with where people are feeling today. Um, I think yesterday uh, we also announced uh, some uh, new arts and culture spaces. Uh, we this week we talked about um, allowing um, uh, responsible use of alcohol in, in various public plazas. I know some of the uh, park board are working on some policies about making that available. I think it's just generally about. Um, you know, trying to generate a bit more vibrancy and and uh, I think pride in our local uh, wine industry is something that I think a lot of uh, British Columbians are already doing and, and, and Vancouverites are going to maybe have a chance to do, do it a bit more. You, you made some good examples there. Do you think maybe we need to loosen up a little bit? I, I would say so. I mean, I think all of us are feeling uh, as, as we get out of the, the doldrums from COVID that it's, it's time for us to kind of socialize, get together and, you know, you don't need to always have a 
glass of wine or a beer in your hand to do that. But it just sometimes for people, it's a way to to have that kind of fun experience and 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 connect with uh, with, with loved ones and friends and and family and and uh, so yeah, let's do that. Let's try and make the city feel uh, sort of catch up and make up for a little bit of lost ground and, and have a bit more fun. It's a tough, it's a bit of a balance though, isn't it, Councillor Klassen? Because some people will also argue that are we doing too much? Are we making, are we going to encourage bad behavior? Yeah, and and and, and that's, those are things you always have to be cautious about, but these industries are among the most heavily regulated in our province right now. I mean, there you can barely budge an inch, uh, even in terms of the store and how you use uh, some of the square footage for placing uh, liquor on shelves. So I, I'm I'm not worried about us uh, uh, sort of letting our guard down too much. I think perhaps what we should be doing is just allowing people to um, uh, to respond and, and, and uh, give them that choice that they've been denied for so long. Okay, so what is the next step here then? So how does that discussion about potentially more licenses for the city happen? Well, I, first of all, I think let's just let's let the grocers respond uh, initially with these changes and uh, allow them to figure out where they where they see the best opportunity for success, uh, where the customers are going to be. Um, so that'll be a first step. And once we are able to hopefully cut a ribbon on uh, on one of those stores, then I think at that point um, we have a chance to have a, a bigger conversation, and and that's one that I'm sure a lot of us would be happy to have with the provincial government. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks, Amy. That is Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen. He brought forward this motion to council. It was voted on last night and passed unanimously by all those who were present, the councillors, that they look to allow grocery stores to have that initiative of putting wine on grocery store shelves. Yes, we have seen this in other communities. I know Surrey does it. I think Langley does it. They just voted in another Metro Vancouver community to recently allow that as well. So do you need that store within a store model? Is that easier for you? And we're clearly talking about loosening up a little bit here of how we approach consuming alcohol, right? Having it at a grocery store. As Councillor Klassen pointed out, voting this week as well to have those public plazas where you can have drinking and they'll allow that year round, not just during the summer months. Park boards taking a look at, you know, public drinking in parks too. Are these, when you look at that all together, the kind of loosening up of those alcohol rules, is that something that when you hear it, you go, hey, good, it's about time. Or do you think, eh, we should be a little careful here? Let me know. Send me at cknw.com. You can call or text that buzz line, 604-331-2899. The key being, with this one, as Councillor Klassen pointed out, grocery stores that want that license, that want to be able to sell the wine in their stores, they have to make that pitch because right now there are no new licenses, liquor licenses in the city. They have to make that pitch now, but they do have the ability to do that now that Council has approved this. So yeah, weigh in with your thoughts on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Ten days ago now, actually a little bit less than that, Simon Fraser University made the very abrupt decision to cancel its varsity football program. And we know, we've talked about this, there are still so many questions about that decision. Like, why now? Why not try to work with other, you know, conferences to get the team in there? Why not think more about the student-athletes who have spent years trying to get to this point? We've heard about how disruptive this has been for those students. They're in the middle of final exam time right now. They've received little to no assistance to help them through this stressful situation. And then there's the history and significance of the program. A program that has sent more draft picks to the CFL than any other school in Canada. 
so you can understand the passion behind trying to keep this program around. And that is something that the SFU Alumni Society has been trying really hard to do here. And in fact, that fight is now turning legal. Joining us now is Glenn Orris. Glenn is the lawyer filing the injunction and director of the Simon Fraser Football Alumni Society. Glenn, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Now, Glenn, first off, tell us about the injunction. What's going on today? Well, uh, we anticipate filing uh, legal proceedings uh, today, uh, whereby we'll be uh, commencing legal proceedings against the university, uh, hoping to persuade them to change their mind uh, and reverse this, what we consider to be a significant mistake on their part, a very significant mistake. Okay, and on what uh, what basis will you file this injunction? What is the justification here? the justification, as far as we're concerned, is really it's, it's, a, it's a classic, uh, from a legal point of view, breach of contract. Uh, the students that are up there, the student-athletes, especially the football team, but I think all student-athletes, but I'll just talk about the football team, uh, they're recruited uh, or come to Vancouver uh, on the representation that you're going to get an education, a very good one, obviously, but you're also going to be able to play football. And if you've grown up playing football and, uh, or, you know, you're, so that, that's a reason why you come. And you come to Simon Fraser for the education, but also to play football. It's a four-year commitment. It's not, uh, nobody says, well, come for a year, we'll see what happens, and we may keep you, we may not. Uh, that, that's, not the, that's not the promise. The promise is come, you qualify, you get an education, and you, play foot, you get to play football. And that's, uh, that's why they come. Those are the uh, the main features: the good education, and they get to play football. So, and that's that's a four year commitment. At least that's the eligibility that you're looking at as a player. And uh, especially when you're looking at the ages of you know eighteen to twenty twenty two, there's a tremendous maturity and, and growth and uh, inability and and maturity during that period of time. So it's a very very significant and important part of your football career. Uh, and it really means whether you can go on and the possibility of CFL uh, or, or not. But it's, so it's a very, very important part of your, your life. And, uh, and that's why you go to university. That's why you go to Simon Fraser. And uh, our position is that to have canceled the program in the manner, in manner which they did without any consultation with stakeholders, without any input from anybody that we can, we can find, uh, and without any warning, uh, is uh, simply a breach of contract. You know, come and play for us for four years, but no, no, sorry, we've changed our mind. Uh, we're done. And that's, so that's, that's the breach of contract. Now, I know how active the SFU Football Alumni Society is, how connected you know, players continue to feel to the program. What had you heard about this? Was there any indication this was coming? No, uh, no. Um, <laughs> the simple answer is no. No, we, we t- we've talked to all the stakeholders that we, uh, that we know as far as the team is concerned. And when we talk about stakeholders, we're talking about not only, you know, coaches, players, uh, you know, immediate football alumni, but, you know, the alumni association generally, anybody else in the university, anybody else outside, you know, the university, other conferences, that they may have talked to, whatever. We've talked to all those people, 
And there is nothing to indicate there was any idea that this was going to happen. So, you know, whoever made the decision, it was kept secret until the day it was announced. Now, Glenn, I know you played football there. You went on to this law career as well. How important was the program to you? Oh, (laughs) I I speak for myself, but I know I speak for everyone else that's been involved in the program. The program is a a life-changing experience. For me, you know, they they, they recruited me out of Winnipeg. Uh, I was playing high school football in Winnipeg. And uh, Simon Fraser at the time was the first university in Canada to openly offer scholarships. Uh, And the key sports were football, basketball, you know, swimming and track and field. Those were the four core sports. So they were recruiting across Canada, and I was lucky enough to get recruited out of Winnipeg. And, and at that point, I was planning to go to University of Manitoba. I had a girlfriend. Everything looked like, you know, was going forward. Came out to Vancouver. Uh, grew up quite quickly. Uh, you know, I was quite young coming out here. And uh, found myself surrounded by wonderful people, not only coaches, but the players, uh, spent three years at Simon Fraser, which I really loved. Uh, met friends that I still have, close friends that I still have to this day. Uh, fell in love with Vancouver, of course. I then went back to uh, Manitoba for law school because I, I, I got uh, the opportunity to play with Winnipeg, the Bombers, coming out of Simon Fraser. So I spent three years playing pro football with the Bombers in Winnipeg while I went to law school. Uh, and then uh, came back out to Vancouver, and I've been out here since, of course, and uh, you know, uh, and have uh, a wonderful family, and <laughs> all of that because of Simon Fraser, no question about yeah. that. So it's a life-changing experience, I know. not just for me, but for many. That's what I think too. Well, look, that program it can do amazing things for people. So, Glenn, are you hopeful? It can. Do you actually think that they can be forced to change their mind on this? Well, I. <laughs> I don't want the I don't want to force them to change their mind. I'd rather sit down with them and talk and, and persuade them that they've made a mistake. And and with the help that we have now we can bring to the to the program and we can bring to the university, we can help them uh, get into a conference in Canada West uh, U Sport the Canadian Conference. They were university conference. We were Simon Fraser was in there for a period of time. Uh, we can help in a number of ways. Uh, to make the program viable and keep it going. So I'm, I don't want to force them. If we have to, we'll try. We'll f- use force. And the force, I mean, of course, is the legal issues. But I'd rather resolve it, uh, you know, with the university and uh, right. nobody gets forced to do anything. They simply say, okay, we've got a, a, a really good opportunity now to move forward with the program. Let's reinstate it. Let's go for it. Um, and I much prefer to do it that way. All right. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for bringing us up to date on that this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Good luck. That is Glenn Orris. He's a lawyer filing an injunction. He's director of the Simon Fraser Football Alumni Society, former player for the team, went on to a law career and is deeply involved in helping, trying to get SFU to change their mind on this. But the thing is, we've tried to even talk to them about it. They won't. They won't. They won't even talk about it. Won't return phone calls. Won't return emails. Nothing. It's been a very frustrating situation. So we'll be following that, talking more about it. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Olivia Hunt is our next guest. She lost her mother to cancer when she was 15 years old. 
Now, losing your mother at any age can be hard, but think about what you were like at 15 and what that loss would feel like. Now, she wants people to understand that because finding ways to deal with her grief at that young age has been so challenging. So she's trying to make it easier by writing a book called Healing Our Wounded Hearts. Olivia is the Saanich Arts 2022 Cultural and Heritage Award winner. And oh, did I mention she is just 16 years old and still doing all this. Olivia joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, Congratulations on on the book, Olivia. How did it feel to get that done and kind of out there in the world? It felt really good. It It felt really good to just get all my feelings out and knowing that I can help other people as well. It felt really good. What is it that you really wanted people to know with writing this book? Um, I wanted to know that, wanted them to know um, that they're not alone in their grief and that I want to try and change the stigma around grief and death because we're told that we shouldn't talk about our feelings and all that. And I think it's very important to be able to express that. Were you told that when your mom passed away? Yes. I was told to just like, move on and get over it but it doesn't work that way no no it doesn't at all how, how did you deal with that um I mostly did a lot of writing and dancing that really gave me my outlets to get out those feelings and when you talk about your feelings and did you find that people were people wanted to hear from you on this yeah, because I think what's, what I was missing was a lack of connection with other people and hearing their stories, which made me feel more alone because it felt like I was the only one my age who had lost someone. So I was amazed how much you can connect with other people. But you have to be willing to talk about it, though, don't you, Olivia? Because I find that with grief, people struggle with people... I have a really hard time talking about it. Yes, definitely. What is the key to getting people to open up about it, do you think? Um, I think just knowing that there's other people out there who are grieving and feeling the same things that you are and that just them showing their pain and their real self so that they know that it's okay. You've talked about this book being, it's written in the voice of a teenager, you said, right? As a teenager. And it's an account of finding your voice through all your loss. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? How, how did you find your voice? Um, well, for a long time after my mom died, I was very like, isolated from everyone. I kind of just kept all those feelings inside and I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, And it was until I started writing, which started giving me my voice because I had to find, I could find words that I couldn't even put like words to my feelings. I just, it all just flooded onto the paper when I would start typing. And it, I feel like writing gave me my voice. And so you now call yourself a teen ambassador for learning through loss. What have you heard from other teenagers? Um, They've said how that 
thank you for making us that are hurting feel heard. And I feel so honored and proud that I can help other people because that was my initial goal with this book. And, and you write poetry too, don't you? Yeah. And I started getting into it just a few months ago, actually, hmm. right before I finished my book. Um, and that really helped me. Was it something that inspired you that you thought, I need to do more than just than write my book? Yes, definitely. Um, because with poetry, it's, it really helps me to like, I don't know, like throughout the chapters, I talked about going in the past and my experiences with my mom and through her cancer journey. And then my poetry is the present, how I'm grieving and how I'm like dealing with the loss. So I think having both of those pieces were very important. I don't know, Olivia, you've done an awful lot for somebody who's just 16. What do you, what do you plan (laughs) on doing for the next couple of years? Um, I guess just keep writing for now. And what do you think Um, your mom would say if she could see all this work that you've done? I think she'd be very, very proud of me. And I I know she is because I can can feel her um, with me all the time. Yeah, I think she would be too. Were you able to talk to her? Um, I know she passed away from cancer, and that's such a hard process with a family member, a loved one like that. Were you able to have these kinds of talks with her while she was going through that? Yeah, her and I were so close. Like, we'd talk all the time, and she was my main support. Um, I even wrote one poem, and I gave it to her in the hospital, and she got to read it. And that's the one I read at her celebration of life. And that's what really got me into writing. And that's what wanted me to continue um, writing this book. Oh, so she really did inspire you, didn't she? She did. Olivia, where can people read some of your work? Um, My book right now is on Amazon. Okay. What about your poetry? Uh, My poetry I have um, on my Instagram page. I post quite a lot of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, where can we find you on Instagram? Um, it's my, do you want me to say my Yeah, name? sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, it's Olivia underscore VIA underscore five, 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 five. Okay. Well, I'm going to check that out, Olivia, because I think your work is just amazing. So thank you for telling us about it this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, best of luck. That's Olivia Hahn. Olivia's 16, by the way. And she's already writing and and trying to work through the loss of her mom who died of cancer when Olivia was 15, so a year ago. She's published a book. The book is called Healing Our Wounded Hearts. And she says that she's a teen ambassador for helping younger people talk about their grief and their loss. And you lose your mom like that. Yeah, I think sometimes adults in particular find it challenging to talk to kids about it, right? So kids kind of bottle it all up. And uh, Olivia is a big champion about letting it out, talking about your grief. So good for her, because that is a very difficult thing for a lot of kids to go through.